Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. Again, I'm joined by guest host, Dr. Shuttler. Um, how are we doing today, Dr. Shuttler? I'm doing very well, Jamal. It's always an honor to come on and uh, talk to you and fill in as a guest host. I know Don's always out doing some exciting things in Indiana and with some of his partnerships. So um, if I can step in as an adequate guest, I am happy to do so. Uh, Zach, you are more than enough. And we are excited because we are in the second episode of our series on transformational leadership. Today, we're focus on, focusing on leading change and innovation. Um, you want to go ahead and kick us off with your thoughts on this topic? Change is very difficult. But if we look at our lives, everything great that we have in our life has occurred through some type of change, um, whether it was, you know, meeting our future wife or having children or getting promoted at work, mm -hmm. all of that change um, proved to be beneficial. I think what people struggle with when it comes to change is if they feel that, that they don't have a choice in the matter. Right. So when we talk about change and innovation in the workplace, no matter how well you do it, there's always going to be a segment of the team that feels like they didn't have a true say. Mm. And that becomes the challenge because you're never going to get 100% buy-in. Mm -hmm. And if, if you wait for 100% buy-in, that's when, that's when things become stagnant. That's when organizations start to crumble. That's when um, you become the um, blockbuster video of, mm -hmm. of the academic or whatever your industry is world. So if you're not willing to change in an organization, you become a dinosaur, you become extinct. Mm -hmm. But if you wait until you have 97% support to change, you're never going to take that step. So it's, it's creating that delicate balance of getting buy-in, understanding um, what people need to be successful. But then once you've got the plan in place and you have some consensus and you have their ideas, um, trying to find a way to move, move the ball forward. Right. And I think the hardest thing with change in my opening thoughts is doing exactly what you said that you would do for the full duration of that time, time frame, whatever it is. If you said in six months, I'm going to, I'm going to lose 30 pounds and I'm going to work out every day. Or if you have your organization, hey, we're going to increase our bottom line by 15%. And here are the steps to get there. Um, I, I feel like, you know, it's kind of like football. At the beginning of the season, everybody's undefeated. Um, and doing what's necessary to continuously move the needle forward um, is oftentimes the consistency piece is um, something that is is a challenge for, for some people. So I, I want to transition to how does a transformational leader foster a culture of continuous improvement? You've got to model it. Um, you can't talk about it if you're not the one modeling it. I mean, if I say it's important to have interactive lessons in your class or project-based learning in your classroom, mm -hmm. and then every single one of my staff meetings is me um, lecturing to my, my leadership team. I'm not, I'm not setting the example that it's important to be interactive in the classroom or interactive in your meetings. 
Um, one of the greatest lessons I think I learned in my career, um, it was in my previous superintendency. We were um, using uh, Microsoft Office, Office 365. And my tech, tech person came to me and said, hey, Zach, I really need you to start using this feature. And it was the feature that would automatically send out meeting invitations through email. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I said, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I really need to use that. And she said, Zach, if you're not using the new features on Office 365, mm-hmm. then nobody will. Even if you don't want to use it, I need you to use it because by you using it, it's going to encourage other people to get on board. And that was probably seven or eight years ago. And I'll never forget that conversation because it changed the way I viewed myself as a leader that if I want people to be innovative and try things, I've got to not just behind the scenes, I've got to publicly try and fail and and play with some of these new tools to encourage them and and create that sense of it's okay to be vulnerable in areas um yeah so that's one of my best examples of how it's um, important to lead change through example i'm sitting i'm sitting here thinking and as you were talking i'm thinking about the the example like I, I like there were there were some adults in my neighborhood um uh one time I, we were on our way to school and we saw these adults you know smoking smoking cigarettes and we're crossing the street it, it wasn't anything major we were all safe or whatever the case is but as we're walking by the uh the adults said hey never smoke as they were you know taking the drag and that's an image that that stood out with me um it, and when you mentioned that, it kind of reminded me of that example because as leaders, sometimes we 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 can fall into the trap of saying we're going to do this, everybody, and here's the direction that we're gonna go in. But it, it if we're not like you said, actually u- utilizing or being a model of what it is that that we expect, um, how can we expect? our people to continuously improve if we are not modeling what continuous improvement looks like. So just, just to kind of stretch this a little bit further, what does continuous improvement look like um, on, on a campus or in an organization? Sometimes people get hung up on words and I get it. So sometimes people view improvement as it being consider that they're not enough. So sometimes people relate better to the term growth. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we can get caught up in in linguistics a little bit too much. Um, But, you know, if you want somebody to grow, you have to put the environment in place where it's okay to grow because part of growth is going to be, um, it's going to lead to feelings of inadequacy or failure. Yeah. If, if I go to the driving range this evening and a golf coach changes my swing, there is going to be a long period of it um, being uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. because I swung a golf club a certain way mm-hmm. for 30 years, even though it wasn't very successful, it became comfortable. Right. So when somebody changes something or tweaks something, there's going to be a level of uncomfortability. So mm-hmm. an important component in a in a growth-minded innovative culture is making failure okay 
okay and creating that sense of vulnerability and again it goes back to the modeling example mm-hmm. um if they don't see the leader trying to grow and improve and making mistakes and being open about those mistakes there's going to be that fear mm-hmm. for them to make them and again a lot of leadership is very similar to parenting um there's a lot of kids out there that grew up in a world where their parents pretended to be perfect, pretended not to have any issues, mm-hmm. and it led to strong feelings of inadequacy for their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best parents that are very strong leaders are very open with their children that, hey, I'm trying something new. Hey, I got a new job. I'm still trying to figure it out. Or, hey, I make mistakes too. Or, hey, when I was your age, I couldn't do that either. Mm-hmm. Um, good parents say that they're sorry and apologize to their kids when they lose their temper or mm-hmm. lose their hope. And I think those kids that grow up in households like that are more apt to take risks than if they grow up with parents who um, put on that facade of perfection. And I think the same is true in organizations. Mm-hmm. That, if you, that if you have a boss that is an extreme micromanager, that they are very caught up in their own image, um, that everything has to be super buttoned down and airtight. Yeah. There is going to be a natural fear of innovation and taking risks. And that leader might never, ever punish somebody for making a mistake. Right. They might never um, discourage innovation. But if they put on this perfect facade every day, it sends the message that things around here need to be perfect. Right. And nobody will ever feel like they they can uh, make a mistake because like you said, um, if, if our leader doesn't, you know, show us how to respond when we make a mistake, uh, it, it, it does, it can create a culture of fear as, a, as opposed to continuous improvement because in, in continuously improving or growing, there has to be room for, for failure. Um, let's switch gears here and let's talk about some specific uh, techniques um, that help a leader be successful in leading change initiatives? I think if you want to lead a change initiative, the the best technique is to be able to tell a compelling story mm-hmm. that paints the picture for the need, mm-hmm. that the story itself creates a sense of urgency mm-hmm. um, and a sense of purpose for this change to happen. And part of that story isn't just, in my case, helping students succeed and get to where they want to go in life. Mm -hmm. Part of that story also has to be how this change is going to help you become a better principal Mm. or a better teacher or Mm. a better custodian Mm. or a better bus driver. People relate to stories. I could spit out a thousand spreadsheets about why it's important to do A, B, or C. And it, it just doesn't move the needle. I mean, we see politicians do this all the time when they tell stories about specific people that their policies could help and impact. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in schools. It's the same in organizations. Painting a compelling, optimistic picture of the future with the steps that it will take to get there and why it matters, why it's our purpose, why it's our, our mission mm-hmm. to do this. And then... You know, everybody has selfish characteristics. We all have egos. I mean, myself, yourself, we all do. So part of that picture, part of that story needs to be 
how this change is going to help me um, become what I want to be or where I want to go. Right. And I think, I think something as well is equally as important is the technique for communication. Uh, I want to let, let you start off. Uh, what, are, what are some, like, what's, what's, what is the role of communication in leading change and how should people go about doing it? We talked, uh, we had a meeting yesterday, you, you led our meeting where you talked about the Toyota way and how leaders need to, to really get into the weeds um, with their people. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to communication, sitting, you know, sitting in the tower um, high above the fray yeah. isn't a great way to communicate that you genuinely care about people and the change. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the grassroots, you know, door to door campaigning is, is the best way to communicate why change is necessary because oftentimes when you do that, um, you find solutions from your people. And many times those solutions will be things that you didn't think of, or there'll be a different spin on the solution or the change that you wanted to purport anyway. So now when you go and tell that compelling story and you stand up in front of your team, you're not just telling that story from your perspective, you're telling that story from the people who are doing the works perspective. And if you do it the right way, they know it's not, you know, a line of, a line of bull because you stopped by that classroom or you stopped by that building or Mm -hmm. you went and, you know, talk to the bus drivers or the custodians about why this change needs to take place and what their thoughts were. So if you want your story to have credibility, you have to do the grassroots um, work of, of getting down in the weeds and seeing the problems yourself and talking to people about their perspective on, on those problems or what they perceive the problems to be. Right. And I think something that's important for us to consider here is the fact that our action, our actions speak, um, going to where the work is taking place, observing, having discourse that matters to people. Uh, you, you talk about, you know, our communication being visible, being able to see, um, our leaders is so very important to us. I'm, I remember um, several times um, when I was sitting in my office as an assistant principal and whenever my principal would come to where I was working and not simply call me to the office, just see how I was doing, just to talk to me about the work and some of the things that I needed, that always that always motivated me and inspired me because it, it made me feel like, okay, this person is willing to come to where, where my action is taking place, which inspired me to go out and do the same thing. One thing that um, I also want the audience to consider is um, I, I do I, I do this thing where I do like small group meetings. So I break my entire staff up into just different small groups and um, I prepare the agenda with things that I feel like is going to be specific to them with whatever change um, I'm trying to initiate because I want to hear everyone's voice. And I do the surveys and everything else, but it's 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 something about getting in front of people and talking to them about things that pertain to their job or their work or answering their specific questions. I find that hard to do in a group setting because then you have, you know, you know, 50, 60 people asking different questions and some of those questions don't pertain to that other person. So that's something that um, you all can consider is doing a small group meeting, breaking your organization up into smaller divisions, and then um, preparing an agenda that's similar but not congruent 
um, and tailoring your message to uh, for for each group in the school. You have your administrators, you have your teachers, you have your parents, you have your uh, support staff. So meeting with all of those groups, oh, and you have students as well. So meeting with all of those groups um, in the setting that's conducive for them is extremely important um, for communication. Let's let's transition. Zach, into the importance of taking calculated, calculated risks to drive innovation. I really feel, not just feel, but believe in education, we're in an advantageous spot when it comes to calculated risk. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're designing, um, you know, vehicles, it might not be the best environment for calculated risk. If you're designing a new medical treatment, might not be the best environment always for calculated risk, but most situations in education are relatively low risk. Um, you have 184 days with students, at least here in Ohio, we do. So if you want to try a different strategy or a different activity mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't work out, then it's not necessarily, you know, the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is an area where we need to be more open in education because mm -hmm. The world around us is changing. Um, I mean, heck, even how I earned my doctoral degree, I lived three and a half hours from the University of Finley and I was able to have direct interaction with my professors. Mm. I was able to get my questions answered sometimes in minutes by calling or texting my professors. Um, that couldn't have taken place 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, in K-12 education, I feel like we're a little bit behind the curve. Yeah. especially with things that we're seeing right now with teacher shortages and, and substitute teacher shortages and bus driver shortages. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we be innovative, not just on the instructional side, but on a grander scale? Um, is there a way to hire the best math teacher in the state of Ohio when that math teacher might live in California? Um, are there ways, especially in the high school setting, to change the way that we deliver instruction so maybe students don't need to be on campus seven or seven and a half hours a day. Right. Um, I firmly believe that there are ways to do that, but we're often so gripped on, on the outdated or old model mm. that we're, we're fearful of taking these calculated risks. Right. And if we try things and they work, or we try things and they don't work and we realize that we didn't lose anything, that's the best way to get people to take calculated risk right is okay hey remember that time we we tried that innovative pd day and everybody hated it <laughs> what did we really lose oh we lost nothing hey remember that day we tried that innovative pd and we went off site and we did some fun games and activities and everybody loved it what did we gain oh we gained a ton so all right let's talk about calculated risk oh okay but if you if you always play everything close to the chest and you're always super conservative, there is inevitably going to be a fear of taking any kind of calculated risk. And I think I think the impact, um, I said impact, I think one of the root causes of that is because people are loss adverse. And as you were talking, you, you look at the history of any school. Right, we talk about tradition and pride and some of those things. And I think we hold on to those things, but what we really say sometimes is if I do something different, I may we may lose the results that we're currently getting. 
whether those results are are great or not, sometimes the results that you're getting or the outcomes that you're getting, people feel like they've maxed out or maximized um, where they are. So instead of me losing on what it is that we've already become accustomed to to doing, I don't really think it's worth the risk sometimes to actually to actually do something different to try. And then there's also the fear of if I try, I may lose. So I may lose twice. It may not work if I do it, but if if I do it, I know what I'm doing doesn't necessarily work, but I'm accustomed to it. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable in um, doing the things that I'm currently doing. And I think as leaders, um, like just like we said, fostering fostering uh, an environment in which we can take risk and starting small, I call it firing bullets before firing cannonballs to give it a test because a lot of times we're afraid and we simply don't know if it's going to be good or bad or indifferent, but we don't we don't necessarily try all the time. Dr. Shuttler, do you have any closing remarks for us? Well, that, you, you led me to um, a very interesting, interesting study that I read and I can't remember who the author was or what book I read it in, but when it comes to innovation and risk and being risk averse, uh, there was a study on PGA Tour golfers and they, they factored in, you know, slope, green speed, um, all of those things. And they found that golfers who were putting for par mm-hmm. made a higher percentage of those putts from the same distance as opposed to when they were putting for birdie. Mm because of the natural human nature of being risk averse. Mm. And I think that's true in schools and in businesses that, okay, we would rather play it safe and, and two putt for par than really giving it a, a, a good run at birdie. And again, when you know the data, it can change the way that you do things. And if we know that making birdie on a putt can get us to where we want to be, then that's a risk, you know, worth taking in schools. This is true. Well, and just reminding everyone, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Uh, this is Jamal Crook for Dr. Shuttler reminding you that opportunities are everywhere. Peace.